Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Yo, what's up? This is Trill OG Bum B, and you already know what it is. Come on, son. It's the podcast. Get with it. Come on, son. son, son. <laughs> What up, everybody? It's Ed Love. It's time for another Come On, Son, the podcast brought to you by, of course, CigarsInternational.com, where I get all my smokes and where you should go to if you are a cigar fiend or cigar fan like I am or you know somebody that smokes cigars or somebody's birthday coming up or you have a uh, client that you want to give really good cigars to, go to CigarsInternational.com and you can get all your cigar needs. That's exactly where I get my lighters from, my cutter, my puncher, my case, and any new cigar that I want, just like the uh, La Roma de Cuba uh, Selection they did just sent me, Torpedo Sides, is a really great, great smoke. Um, you know, it's the first time that one of the master Cuban cigar blenders, uh, Carrillo, has made a uh, La Roma de Cuba specifically for, uh, made a cigar for specifically for La Roma de Cuba, and they're going to go fast. So if you want them, you're going to have to go to cigarsinternational.com and get them. Coming up on uh, this episode right here is one of the most revered and respected um, special lecturers of Rice College, um, hip-hop icon, uh, and uh, just a triple OG, man, and, and, and everybody loves him. He's part of the legendary group UGK. I'm talking about Bun B, the surviving member after Pimp C passed on, and it's just amazing that Bun has been able to continue his career, you know, a lot of times that you have a group or, uh, you know, a twosome or whatever you want to call it, a group. Well, if one person passes away, so a lot of the times that's the end of the group, right? Like they can't continue and the person doesn't achieve the same success as a soul artist. But there's something about Bun B and there's something about Bun B as a person. There's something about Bun B as an MC. Uh, there's something about Bun B as a man that people are attracted to, and his legend continues. And UGK continues because he always reps UGK. So um, for the next 48, 47 minutes or however long I got Bun B here to sit with me and talk, we're going to be exploring the career of Bun B. We're going to be talking about politics. We're going to be talking about music. And we're going to be just talking about Bun B as a man right here 
on the Come On Son podcast with me, Ed Lover. Come on, son. It's time to get it going. As promised, y'all, on uh, this episode of Come On Son, the podcast, the one and only highly revered and, and very special Mr. Bun B is with us. How you doing, sir? I'm good, OG. How you doing? Oh, sir? man, OG. You the OG, bro. But it feels good <laughs> to be able to, because everybody always calls me OG because of, I guess, the reverence they have or the level of inspiration I have, and I have to call you that. You know what I'm saying? Because I remember. Nah, Bun, I started, wait, wait a minute, let me see. We started, Dre and I started at 89. When did you start? I started in 92. Okay. So I got you about a few so, years. So, yeah, yeah. So, no, nah, but I, I do remember, man, the contributions that y'all made, man. And that being home, watching y'all, like, being a part of the culture, a part uh-huh. of the lifestyle, I wanted to be a part of that. Like, not just being, because I, I think when I first started maybe watching these shows, I don't even know if I was actively an MC at that time. Oh, wow. I just wanted in on the culture, but I couldn't draw. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the hand-eye coordination for DJing. Right. And my breakdancing was so-so. <laughs> so, like, MCing was my last hope. Right. Luckily, I had a, I had a skill for it. What, what, what spawned that? Like, was there a certain song that you heard or a certain group that was really made you say, hey, I want to be an MC? Well, I mean, listening to, obviously, like, the Juice Crew, a big inspiration, but also, like, um, I think, like, Lord Finesse was a big inspiration for me. Chub Rock. Do was, they know this? I don't know. I, I've oh, never, wow. You I got to tell Finesse next Chub Rock was a big inspiration um, for me. Um, Rest in Peace Heavy D mm-hmm. was a big inspiration. And Heavy D and Chub Rock was twofold, right? Really even threefold, I think. Because, one, they were dope MCs. Two, they were educated, right? Like, Chub Rock had a degree. That was a big influence for me. And then three, they were big dudes, but they weren't slouchy. They were fresh. Mm-hmm. They were clean, right? So all of those things had an impression on me um, at a young age. And then, like, skill-wise, um, it was definitely Lord Finesse, um, Coogee Rap, <clears throat> Big Daddy Kane, DMC. Those are the guys that, like, that's the aggressiveness, and that's how I wanted my voice and my my flows to cut through the crowd, mm-hmm. you know? What were your early steps, like, as an MC? Like, I mean, besides writing, what was your early steps to get yourself to the point where people started recognizing you for being an MC? Um, I think in school, you know, like, I, I battled, right? Like, consistently, like, constantly. I cut through the crowd of MCs in my town very quickly. You know what I'm saying? Because I realized that that was one way to just not only let people know you could rap, but to figure out who could who was better than you or who wasn't as good as you. And um, beyond that, man, information, right? I always read the local paper, but then I would also try to get, like, a New York Times or a Wall Street Journal or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I always try to have some kind of periodical that I would read, like a Time magazine. You know, When I was younger, maybe a Life magazine, something like that, because I was interested in how the world looked and, and things like that. And then at a very young age... and which is a young age, but still older than a lot of y'all. I'm from the era where they used to sell encyclopedias door to door. Oh, yeah. So my dad, that was a big thing for him, was to invest in buying me like a set of encyclopedias, and we still have them in my bedroom at my mom's house. Oh, wow. I still have my my Encyclopedia Britannica. And I used to read, you know, (laughs) I used to read things. I did book reports, cut, you know, cut stuff out of it and all of that, but it was always about information. I felt like if I had more information than the other MC, then I would have more of a pool of resources to draw from than anyone else would. Mm-hmm. Instead of just trying to say I'm fresher than you and I'm doper than that. I, if I wanted to go into metaphors, I would have more things to draw reference from. So right. I just wanted to know more than to do it in front of me. And I felt if I knew more, 
then all I had to do was learn how to rap, and then I would automatically be able to rap better than other people. I didn't understand that there was still skill and technique. It took more than big words yeah. to, to be an <laughs> MC, right? Yeah. And so, um, and I grew into that, right? But I had the love for it, I had the passion for it, and I gave it everything I had. And then once I became like an, an artist in the music industry, then the dynamic changed because, you know, up until then, it was very little concentration on making money or worrying about the business. It was all about the skill and the talent. Then once you got in the industry and realized how much money was available and how much money was being made and how much money I wasn't making out of that money, then the rhyming became a small part mm. of it. And then it became about information about the music industry. I don't need no more information about how to rap. We didn't. We, we did that. Now let's figure out how to capitalize right. off of this art form. And how to make money off of it. Absolutely. Because the record companies are making money yeah, off of it. Yeah, everybody record companies are making what was, money. What was the outlets for rap? Were there a certain, in Port Arthur, Texas, were there? The bedroom. The club? The, the there court, was no club? The courtyard. No... I mean, house parties. House parties. You know what I'm saying? We didn't really get, like, a club that people could actually, like, perform rap music in until after UGK had already come out and made music. Then it became more of a market. Because you remember the early days, you had to do a rap show wherever you could. So mm-hmm. we weren't in House of Blues and, the, you know, these big clubs like that back in the days. we in the, in the South, we was in BFW halls. And, like, we'd have to wait till after they finished playing bingo. And, you know what I'm saying? Right. To try to get a place because they wouldn't insure you. And then you couldn't just rap in the club like that. And even when they did have rappers in the club, they weren't really doing a lot of local. It wasn't until Rap-A-Lot came till they really started doing local. Until then, it was about bringing... EPMD or Ice Cube or Shop of Ranks or all these different movements that were happening mm-hmm. simultaneously um, in the country at the same time. Right, Luke and the two live Absolutely, crew. man. It was beautiful. Was there radio? Was was in Port Arthur, Texas? Yeah, I, well, in Port Arthur, no. So what we would do, if you lived in a certain place and you had maybe a, a, a strong antenna, then you could pick up some of the Houston radio stations like Magic 102, which is now primarily um, R&B record, but it used mm-hmm. to be like the dominant... Um, radio station at the time. Like, you can't even say hip-hop and R&B because it wasn't, you know, hip-hop and R&B. That's a new term as far right. as radio goes. But they were the people that would have the little hour of rap music. And um, I think a lot of the, the breaking ground for hip-hop all over the country was college radio. Mm. You know what I'm saying? A lot of those people were the people that were really giving two hours and three hours to hip-hop in those early days when those radio stations just couldn't couldn't justify devoting their time. So we had KTSU. Um, that had Kids Jam Radio, which broke a lot of hip-hop records, both nationwide records and local records. And then there was a radio station at Rice University as well that Will Strickland used to run back in the day. Is that me? Mm-hmm. I apologize for that. That's okay. But Will Strickland, who's up in Canada now, um, he used to run that joint Sorry, mm-hmm. and uh, at Rice University at the time, and he was one of the first people to bring me up to a radio station, interview me, and play my record. Him and, like, him and Greg Street were like the first people to kind of like get behind us. Really, and really. Him and yeah, Street and Reggie Reg. Back in the so day. you're you're running around in in uh, Port Arthur and you're reading encyclopedias and periodicals and <laughs> honing your skills, so to speak. Yeah. When did you run across uh, Mr. Chad? AKA in high school. MC? In high school. What and, what grade do you remember? Um. Yeah, I was in uh, at that time. I would have been uh probably in eleventh grade. He mm-hmm. would have been a sophomore, and we had a mutual friend, Mitchell Queen. So that's who he was rapping with at the time, and I was just getting into music. And um, so um, he knew Mitch and I knew Mitch and like we didn't really like know each other personally. And he had an idea of who I was. I had an idea of who he was. And we didn't really, we didn't really like each other. Right? But we didn't know each other, right? Mm-hmm. But based on what we thought we knew about the other person, we didn't like that person. So we finally met and um, 
what I thought I knew about him, I didn't. I was what wrong. did you think he was? Huh? What did you think Pimp C was? Um, they had always said that he had like all this equipment. Like we're in a very small town, right? And they would always say that he had all this equipment and was making all these beats and this music at his crib. And I'm like, nah, he probably just getting records y'all ain't heard yet, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then for me, like. I've been having a beard since, like, my sophomore year. <laughs> so I've been able to, like, sneak in clubs and stuff like that. So I would like, go to places and be like, yeah, I was just over here and they was doing this. So I actually went to a club and, like, DOC and all of them was in the club Easy e and they were, like, taking the, the pictures up against the backdrop with the Polaroids. And I actually, like, while they was just take a picture, put it down, take a bunch of pictures, and I stole one of the pictures. And I was like, yeah, I went to the party. He's like, you ain't went to the party, and I showed the picture. So what he thought he knew about me wasn't true, and what I thought I knew about him wasn't true, and it kind of intrigued us about the other person. Mm-hmm. And then um, we ended up bonding, and we all ended up becoming a group. But then Mitch got a scholarship and decided to go play football, and that's how me and Pimp kind of ended up it being us. What was the name of the early group? Oh. The early group was called 4BM. Actually, before I was with um, Pimp, he and Mitch were originally UGK. Okay. That, they, that was their name. And then when we got together, I was in a group called PA Militia, and then we all got together and we became 4BM. Okay. And then when the other two members dropped out to pursue um, sports in high school, we got back together, and then we just went back to that original UGK. What band. was your backup plan? Or did Mine you was have college, one? so I had a, I had like a scholarship, and so my thing was I'm gonna give this a year, and if it doesn't work, I'll just retake my entrance exam, and then you know just go go on with life or whatever. And mm-hmm. I signed my record deal. I graduated like on like May 31st. And signed my record deal on like April 30th. To who? Of the next year, to Jive Records. To Jive Records. So I gave myself a year and signed my record deal in 11 months. But you guys had uh, little deals in between before Jive. Well, we had right? signed with the independent label, like Fresh Out of High School. Mm-hmm. And again, this was just about seeing if we could actually put a record out. That's mm-hmm. really what it was at the time. Because in 1991, nobody was getting rich, right? Russell Simmons wasn't who he was, Puff Daddy wasn't who he was, Leo. You know, none of these people who they were, people weren't really getting rich off of rap music. They were making money and doing shows, but people weren't making the kind of money they were making now. So saying that from Port Arthur, Texas, that that was going to be a career, even in my mom, when I told my mom, my mom told me I had to go. She kicked me out, you know. Really? Even within myself, even within myself, I knew that this was a reach. This was a stretch, right? This was a long shot. And I didn't even believe in myself as much as I did believe in Chad. Like, if it was just on me, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I believed in Pimp because the way you asked me what was my plan B, I had one. He didn't have one. Mm. It was music or nothing for him. And so because of that, I knew that this kid was going to give it everything he had. So I was like, I'm going to ride with him, and we're going to give it a year, and if it don't work, I just, you know, go on with my life. Did you grow up in a in a, in a uh, single-parent home? Uh, my, I grew up with, initially my both my parents there. My parents divorced my fourth grade year. Okay. Then my mother moved and then remarried. So mm-hmm. um, I definitely had a father figure in the house, you know, somebody on my ass. Right. Teaching me about responsibility and stuff like that. Um, Pimp as well. Pimp had, uh, you know, his parents were together. They divorced, but he still had his father in his life and his stepfather in his life. So. Right. So you both come from pretty solid backgrounds. Yeah, we were blessed, you know. Why, we were very why, why was it music or nothing for Pimp? Because that was the only thing I think he really had a passion for in life. Mm. It wasn't that he couldn't excel in school and stuff like that. That's just not where his energy was. That's just not what what he felt he wanted out of life. This music meant more to him than it'll probably ever mean to me. Oh, wow. You know? Mm. And and so, and like I said, even when I didn't believe in myself, I believed in him. And so that's what this was really, this really started about we're going to make a record. 
I'm going to hold this dude down because this dude is going to make this record. And so I'm going to hold him down, and when he make it, I'm going to be right there with him. Right. And then we're going to see what happens from there. Right. So you go from PA <clears throat> Militia, and then there's two other members of the group. Yeah, Mitch and Jalon. And they leave. Yeah. So now it's just you and Pimp. Y'all yeah. continue to make music? Are you going to the studio? Are you working on a four-track? Like, where's this money I mean, we're pre-producing at the house. Like I said, Pimp's family... Um, was affluent for Port Arthur, for, the, for where we lived at. They own, like, a lot of vending machines in the country, and, I mean, in, in the county. And I would, like, sell, like, so Pimp's family owned vending machines, right? So, like, in high school, Pimp had a Sam's card. So we would go to Sam's, and we would buy, like, a bunch of candy and then go to school and sell the candy okay. at school and flip the candy like that. Then my mother was, like, a nurse. She would do, like, home health care for invalids. So I would go and, like, babysit invalid people at night and make money for that and bring all of that to buy more equipment and studio time and stuff like that. Oh, wow. So you guys were dead-ass serious about what you were doing. It was yeah, and every when, dime that you made, every little bit of change you had went... Went to studio and equipment and trying to pursue what we was doing. And then when we needed more money than selling candy <laughs> to provide, we started selling other things, right. you know? Uh-huh. So you hit the streets to get yeah, yeah. what you needed. So yeah. what the stuff that you're talking about and the music that you started to create was and that kind of stuff was coming from experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, from like firsthand being out on those corners, like active in the game, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too specific about things. Well, is the statute of limitations up now, but well, I guess so. I mean, you know, I'm I'm I mean, yeah. I just a force a habit. These right. are not th- these are not things that we're used to talking about. Right. right. But no, that was our reality at the time, you know, we and but we had a purpose, we had an end game. And I think that's kind of why we were able to do what we did and get out because it was never about you know, hustling for the sake of hustling. Like, mm-hmm. the only reason we were doing what we were doing was to try to get to a certain place, get what we needed to do to for our movement, and then the music should take care of everything else. So I don't want to just be out here selling dope to sell dope. If we're going to sell dope, then let's have a, a plan, some kind of structure to it, right? If we're going to do something stupid, then let's be as smart as we can <laughs> about it, you know? And and that's kind of what we did. And once we got what we needed, we never we never went back. Mm-hmm. And luckily, people supported the music, and we didn't have to go back. Right. So you put out your first records on small independent labels. Yeah, big time you, records. Big time records. Were you getting yeah. any play at all on the radio? Yeah, the yeah. So that was the crazy thing about the first single we did. Tell me something good. Um, we had already signed the deal with the record company. We had recorded the record. Who did the track for the record? <clears throat> Pimpsey. Okay. Was it, was it, uh, tell me something good. I'm Rufus automatically thinking of Rufus Absolutely. and Chaka Khan. Okay. But that was the chorus, but we rapped to Summer Breeze by the Osley Brothers. Okay. So that's what the verses was, was was Summer Breeze. And then the hook was Tell Me Something Good by Rufus and Chaka Khan. And so they had a, they used to have a, sh- a radio show in Houston called Houston Home Jams. And for two weeks every day, they would have a local artist send a song and they would play the song. And then people would call in and say whether or not they liked it or not. And whoever got the most likes at the end of two weeks got the chance to get their single pressed up at RPM Studios. So we got in. We got in on the last day of one of the rounds of it, and we ended up winning. But then because we were already signed and the record was getting pressed up, we got disqualified. Oh, wow. But people kept calling the radio station wanting to play the record. So the radio station kept playing the record. Eventually, we put it out. And, like, the guy that signed us had a record store in the flea market. So I worked at the record store in the flea market. So before I even put my record out, people would come up, yo, what you got new? Yo, we got this DJ Quick. 
we got this, you know what I'm saying? Right. Got this new um, Buju Bantan. I mean, I'm sorry, like Chopper Ranks or something like that. Mm-hmm. Some dance hall stuff. And then, like, when my record came, they come up like, yo, what you got? Yo, I got this this new group, UGK. And I play a song. But I like that, man. Let me get that. And then they'll come back, like, three, four <laughs> days later. Man, you ain't tell me this was you, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so, um, you know, it, it, and then we, you know, we had a good relationship with wholesalers mm-hmm. and one-stops because we were a record store. He had a record store. So once he let them know he had a record, you know, we went and, like played the record for people and people liked it and they started ordering it. And what happened was when we were out the same week that like Crisscross dropped. And Crisscross Yeah. So the wow. so the album Crisscross dropped the album and they out we we outsold them in Houston that week, right? So mm-hmm. they were the number one record in the country, but all of a sudden it's but it's not the number one record in Houston. So then that started like a little bidding war for UGK and Jive ended up Kind of winning it by default mm-hmm. because we were. What do you mean? Well, we so people started calling and be like, "Yo, we want to sign y'all. We got forty thousand dollars." Like the first call was like Warlock Music, you know what I'm saying? And so all these different little labels calling and calling, and then like got up to like I don't know, like two hundred fifty thousand dollars they wanted to offer us, and it was on like a Friday, and we started telling people, "Nah, we ain't tripping," you know what I'm saying? And um, so then Saturday nobody calls, and then Sunday nobody calls. We get nervous because we don't know anything about the music industry, anything. So we think people have lost interest and we think we overplayed our hand. Mm. We don't realize it's the weekend, record companies are closed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Sunday night, we like, yo, whoever call first Monday, uh-huh. we just gonna sign. It's like, if anybody, <laughs> if anybody call Monday, we gonna, we gonna sign. And uh, Jive Records called, it was the first record company to call that Monday morning. We were like, sold. It's done. Did you make any money off the from when you was on the other label, the independent label? Were you guys we were, making any money? It was or were you funny. Doing shows? I mean, it was independent. We were doing shows, but I mean, like bottom of the barrel, five hundred thousand, fifteen hundred, probably by the time we signed the record deal. I got like a fifteen thousand dollar advance. I went straight to Jamaica, Jamaica, bought like a bunch of bottles. But I ain't having. I didn't really. I never ran with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of was me at the club <laughs> with a bunch of bottles. And it didn't. It wasn't even the club that had like bottle service at tables. So I'm right. just literally on the stage, like with a bunch of bottles. Like, come up. <laughs> and then different people come up, like, "What you doing?" Like, "Yo, we just signed a record deal." Like, right. To, this is your job deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. You got. You got how much? On fifteen grand. Fifteen grand on the, on your first job deal. Yeah. That's not your recording, but that's recoupable fifteen thousand. Oh yeah, no, I gotta get, I gotta pay that back. <laughs> Did you know anyone at Jive Records at all? No, had y'all we, submitted any music to Jive? No, no, we didn't submit anything. Um, Jeff Sledge and Sophia Chang, kind of like mm-hmm. you know her, you know that that was their thing, which is still Jeff Sledge's really big thing about him is that he knows how to watch markets and watch these small movements that are making big noise regionally. And that's kind of how we got on the radar. Mm-hmm. And then um, it just kind of went from there, like them reaching out and we like what you're doing. And, you know, like I said, they was the first one to call Monday morning. So it was really like, <laughs> you want it, you got it. After job, did anybody else call after job? That you was like, damn, we should have waited? Um, No, but then we, after we did what we did, the way like we kind of rushed into our situation, um, with Tony Draper being in Houston and Suave Records being ba- based in Houston, Tony was kind of able to watch kind of what we were doing wrong and do it right. So we kind of had to sit and watch as Suave Records made all the right decisions. Right. And, like, got they held out way longer. We held out for a weekend. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they held out for months. And when they cashed in, they really cashed in. Right. You know? But it wasn't salty. It was like, yo, we just played this wrong. We got to 
make sure we figure this out. And then, if you had to and, go back and do it over again, how would you have done it? I, I, I wouldn't go back. I wouldn't go back because, I mean, that, those were the lessons that I felt like I needed to learn in those moments in order to, to get where I was. Because messing that first deal up, you know, made me more made me concentrate even more about every deal I had done since then. Your first deal with Jive was for how many albums? Five albums. Five albums. Yeah. Y'all fulfilled that contract? Yeah, by the time Pimp passed. Well, I mean, after Pimp passed away. Okay. It took, like, literally the album after Pimp passed away. To, really? To, so yeah. from when, what year did you sign 92. with Jive? 92. 92 and Pimp passed in? Like 2007, I want to say. So it took that long? Well, and I'll tell you, i give you a very interesting conversation I had with Leo, and I'll make it short, but Leo's... We Leo was arguing about the fact that Pimp C wouldn't get on a plane and fly to Trinidad for um, the Big Pimpin' video. And he was like, you guys just seem stubborn. It just seems stubborn to me. And he was like, yo, how long, what's your What's your deal? Like, how long is your deal? I'm like, five albums. He was like, how many you done? I was like, three albums. He's like, when did you sign? I was like, 92. He's like, so it's been nine years. You got a five-album <laughs> deal, and you've only turned in three albums. Why? Because you're stubborn. You know what I'm saying? You could have right. been out of this deal. Instead of arguing with them, hanging up, talking crazy, which he didn't know anything about us. Uh, but he was like, just doing all of this stuff to try to prove a point. You could have been out of this album, this deal, contract, four years ago. Why wouldn't Pimp get on a plane to fly to Trinidad? Um, he just did not want to, for one, he wasn't really crazy about flying anyway. Uh-huh. But then two, he was, he was, he was in a place where he felt it was a better situation than being at the video shoot. Oh, okay. Really? Yeah. Is it true he didn't want to do the record at all? Uh, initially, yeah. Why? It, cause he knew that Jay-Z's audience wasn't our audience. And that when we did this record, that it would be presented to people that didn't know anything about us as this. And he didn't want people to have a misconception about who UGK was or what they represented. And he was very concerned about this being the first record that anyone would ever hear from us. Mm. Okay. What did UGK represent? UGK represented, like, the true South, right? Like, the deep South. that no, Not the big cities that people go to for basketball and football games, but the small towns in the South that really make up the true deep culture of what the South represents. We just wanted to be a real reflection of small town, young, young cats trying to get it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what you guys were. I, I think we got it. What did you? Th- what do you think? Besides, I mean, the fact that you guys had a movement, and uh, there's been a lot of people that have had hit records. Yeah, uh, that come out of small towns, and a lot of times the record companies, the major labels, will sit back and watch the record. And once the record dipped, they be like, "Ah, I knew we shouldn't have signed these guys over here." What do you think it was about UGK that Jeff Sledge was like, "Yeah, let me grab this." Um. I don't know initially. Because um, I remember I when he first gave me you guys' first album. We were very raw. Super right? We raw. were very raw in our earliest stages, and we weren't a replication of anything, right? We weren't trying to be the Southern version of this or the Down South version of that. We were very much our own thing. And I think one of the, the things about us that made us you know, attractive to a record company was that all you had to do to get an album was put me and Pimp in the room. You didn't need to go and buy verses and buy beats from people. You just mm-hmm. needed studio time. You and know, that was and, it. And me and Pimp could go in and come out with an album, just us, you know? Uh-huh. But we were a very much a self-sustained unit. But that, even then, they never they knew we had a buzz and they knew people liked it, um, but the record company didn't really understand it and truly, honestly, could not figure out a way to promote it and market it. And they wouldn't listen to any of our ideas about wow. how to market and promote ourselves. What, what were some of your ideas about how to market and promote Well, right. I mean, we, we 
we didn't get to make the album that we felt truly reflected us until our third album because they wouldn't pay for samples that we wanted. Um, they wouldn't give us the time and the equipment to do the kind of project we wanted. They kept us under these very strict calendars and these, you know, this is your date. I need this album by then. And it's like, if you give us a couple of months, we can make something even better. And it's like, look, it's either then or you're going to go on the shelf and you got to wait till another spot opens up on, on calendar next year. Um, it wasn't until Pimp went to jail um, that they realized that everything we were trying to tell them, if you let us talk about this in the way that we want to talk about it and show it in the way that we know how to show it, people will get it. Well, it wasn't until we couldn't do it and the people, other people were doing it and it became, you know, not only popular in the time, it's still a lot of what we were talking about before Riding Dirty even became an album, people are talking about now, the syrup, the candy paint, the cars, the street mm -hmm. music, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, then, then they realized that they failed to capitalize on something that was staring them in the face the whole time. Yeah, it was right there for them to plop. It, even, it must have been frustrating for well, you guys. Well, even beyond though. that, when Pimp got locked up and, I, you know, like I, I had to go to them and offer them my solo album before I could take it anywhere else. And they were like, yeah, go ahead. We don't, that's not going to do nothing. Like, <laughs> they were like, Bumpy Album's not going to do anything. Pimp C was the production. He was the brains and everything. You're just a, a rapper, you know? Right. Like, it was, it was really about his talent, which I'm not going to defer. I'm not going to say anything. I defer to Pimp C totally as, a, as an artist and as a talent. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I ain't chopped liver either. Right. You know what I'm saying? So we kind of had to go out and prove ourselves in that way. And we ended up selling 750000 copies of an album that their machine probably could have pushed 1.5 or 2 million copies of. Wow. You know? How do you not get frustrated with a record label in that I'm, manner and stay there? Oh, no, you're going to get frustrated <laughs> with the record label, and you only stay because you can't leave. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, the only reason you stay in a bad relationship is because you can't get out of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, and that's really what it was about, trying to consistently figure out the intricacies of our contracts so we could maneuver through them and at the same time, find ways to make ourselves even more self-sufficient and more self-sustained so that in the moments where the record company wasn't ready to, to back us financially, that we could take care of ourselves and still get our music and our message out. Yeah, so you go so to That them. was the finesse that took a while. <laughs> that, was the, that was the one. That's something that you had to learn. Yeah, yeah, about how to get these features, how to have them mad enough at you to where they don't want to put you out, but not mad enough to where they won't clear features and and production and stuff like that. Right. And, and then once you get in that space, then you maximize the side hustle, right? And you promote promote yourself as a person that can make beats, like Pimp would make beats for you. I would, you know, I used to ghostwrite for people, write hooks for people. Right. He would do features. And all of those little things, while financially, you know, working out for us, we didn't even realize we were creating buzzes. Instead of having a national record that was making noise in all these big markets, we had these very strong regional records that were connecting all of these little different places, and it just kind of just built up more of the mystique of the group into, and ingratiated us in these small markets that we wanted to connect with more than anywhere else anyway. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of, and being the underground kings, not being a part of the system consistently, falling back, doing more independent stuff than major label stuff kind of played into the aura, what have you, of what underground kings represent. Right. We didn't want to be the underground kings. We got kind of painted into that corner. Okay. They left us no choice. 
So we 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 started with a name that sounded cool, but eventually actually grew into what the name stood for. Wow. So you guys wanted to be just as big as any other rap group. Yeah, that was yeah. Out there, there were many many opportunities that the record company either didn't um, allow us to do, or just simply told people we didn't want to do, like Sprite commercials and all kind of shit. Really? Yeah. Wow. You remember when they did the Voltron commercial with Fat Joe and Goody Mob and all yeah. that? That we were supposed to be in that commercial, but. Jive told them, y'all don't want to work with them, they're stepping in, and they don't want to do that kind of stuff no way. Oh, wow. So they just blowing your opportunities for you right out the window. Yeah. But in retrospect, it kind of worked for you because you did become the underground king. Yeah, and it, again, it, it it kind of forced us to be able to, to, to fend for ourselves. But then again, it played into the mystique of what the name was, and, you know, we kind of ended up, it, it hurt a lot, and it was, it was not easy, but... It all ended up making all the sense in the world when it was all, you know, all said and done. Yeah. Did did, did the song Big Pimpin' put you guys on the national? On Absolutely. It was, but it was a one-two punch too. Like, don't get me wrong, Big Pimpin' was the biggest record of the year. Period. Right. So it's not just the biggest rap record. It's not just the biggest record playing on hip hop and R and B stations. It's the biggest record on every format, probably outside the country or whatever, but it's the biggest pop record, the biggest dance record, the biggest club single, all of these type of things, you know right. what I'm saying? So it's it's exposing us to a market that doesn't really know us at all or really hasn't had a chance to to see us, right? Um, at the same time, we had Sippin' on Scissor with 3-6 Mafia, right. which was the biggest like street record, which was right in, in our demographic, right? Right in pocket with everything that we were doing. So it wasn't like... We had went off and done some other shit, and that's where we were going. We actually were very lucky to have both of those records out at the same time and actually kind of be the best of both worlds. Having this newfound, not just um, success in America, but that became my international calling card, Mm -hmm. right? That became the whole basis of me getting a lot of the international shows that I was able to get after that point. But then also a record like Sippin' on Scissor with a group like 3-6 Mafia, just really not only locking in street music and that underground thing, but just the South, like two two of the biggest movements in the South coming together, making that kind of a record over something that everybody, then we then p- even people in the South had to figure out, what is this? Right. Right, you know, because Houston people know, Memphis people know, but nobody in between really knows. So then it became this whole thing of trying to figure out what Scissor was. And yeah. We just had this one-two punch, man, that... I mean, it it changed everything. It, it it deepened us with everybody that had already been riding with us, mm-hmm. and then at the same time, the other record opened us up to these new markets and opportunities that were never before us. Let's talk about these records for a minute. Let's start with with sipping on some scissor. Who came to you guys with the idea of doing this record? And out of all the records you could have did, why did you accept to do this record? That was a three six mafia record that came to us, and that was part of. 3-6 Mafia and UGK creating a group called Underground Mafia. Oh, wow. So so we, it was a Super Bowl weekend in Atlanta when we recorded it. So we did two songs that weekend, one for their album, which was Sippin' on Scissor, and one for our next album, which was called Like a Pimp. Mm-hmm. And so these were the first two songs that we were experimenting in for this group that we were getting ready to How perform. did that, who's, whose idea was that? That's, How did that that's Chad and Paul. That's Chad and Paul. Oh, so they just hooked up and said, man, that's, we need yeah, to get Pimp together, Yeah, that's Pimp C and man. DJ Paul, like, man, we need to we need to do a group together. You know, right. we talk about the same stuff. And again, it's a group that you put us four in the room, me, Pimp C, Juicy J, DJ Paul, and you have an album. Right. Right, they're going to make all the music between themselves, we're going to write all the rhymes, and you get a, a product, and we know that we can do. We did those two songs in one night, so we know we could do an album in, in a week. It's not a problem. Wait a minute, y'all did both of those songs in a night? 
Yeah, in a couple of hours. Wow. Like, not even like a long night. <laughs> wow. Like, with enough time for them to go to the club after. Uh-huh. And just go do your thing. So <laughs> Yeah, it was Super Bowl weekend. Right, so yeah. We I was here. I was here. But, but it was Super iced out. Like, we felt like, because Pimp lived up this curvy driveway and uh-huh. up this hill, and we had to, like, do, like, a human chain to, like, <laughs> get up the hill, uh-huh. and I fell and hit my face on the... On like a ice covered driveway, my face was frozen for like two days. Wow, it was crazy, and um, because that was a really crazy weather in Atlanta. Yes, it was. Um, really crazy weekend weather wise in Atlanta, and um, despite all, and that also was crazy because that was actually supposed to be when um, Pimp and Jay Z was supposed to do. I think Big Pimp and all of that around that time too, because Jay wouldn't. Jay, remember Jay Z was supposed to come. To All Star Week, I mean to Super Bowl weekend, and record at Pimp's house, but he had court that Monday morning for mm. the unstabbing. Yeah, so he was like, I don't, and the weather was crazy, so he's like, I don't want to go to Atlanta and get stuck. Right, and I got court Monday morning. So, wow, who approached you guys about Big Pimpin? Um, Hove, Hove reached out. Really, was yeah. he a fan of the music? He knew about. Yeah, you yeah, guys? he had known. Uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Clark Kent had given him uh, like an introduction in the UGK. Uh-huh. And he had reached out to Pimp previously for a song, but they didn't get to record that one. And then he reached back out for Big Pimp and, and um, Chaka Zulu kind of connected him with us at the time. And that's kind of how we it all kind of came together. Thoughts the first time you, you uh, heard the beat? I wasn't even concerned about the beat or anything. My thing was, I'm get I'm not finally I get to rap against somebody of real rap repu- reputability. So I get to 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 put my skills, everything that I've been talking about, everything we've been saying about this, you finna rap next to right. You finna rap to the next to the best right now. Right. So I don't care what the song about, the beat, or none of that. Get me in the booth. This is what I've been building up to my whole life. You know what I'm saying? Not to rap with Jay Z, but to rap with the whoever was the best in the game, right? In the moment, and show where I stood. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Where so, did that? So. Somebody, what did you hear? Did you go into the studio? Somebody put the tapes up and you did it? Or did somebody yeah, send your yeah. CD or... or Yeah, Young Guru. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, Young Guru put the... Where did y'all up. record that at? We recorded that. I don't know the name of it. I think that was Sony. Okay, in New York. Yeah, we recorded that in New York. So okay. they flew me up. All right. Went to Rockefeller. They had a bunch of the... right. They had just got like their Rockefeller Air Force Ones in. So they had like 60, yeah. 70 pair of them <laughs> yeah. in the office. They asked me if I wanted a pair. I didn't really wear uptown. So I was like, no. Nah. Oh, bond! I remember the. I remember the. Seriously, night. it was crazy. My I son remember. was. My son was. Was could not believe that I ain't come back with those shoes. Like, yeah, I can't believe. Because I was in the sneakers and everything, but I didn't wear particularly wear uptown, so I knew I wasn't gonna wear them. And I didn't really like to get shoes I wasn't wearing. Okay, all right. So you go. They fly you up to New York. Both of you, you and Pimp. No, Pimp wouldn't go. <laughs> Why not? He wouldn't go. But he still did the verse. So you did your verse before Pimp did his. Yeah. And that's just the way it I did my out. verse in New York. He did his verse in Texas. Okay, because I like always... weeks later. Because <laughs> you got to understand, Ed, this is before Pro Tools and emails and all of that. Right. So this is a record that's on a two track reel. Right. You know what I'm saying? If not on two tracks, it's still on like eight dads or something. But they can't. I they have to. I know that was two track. It was two track. I'm sure of it. And so like you got to rap to that, or they got to send the reels and right. or, or copy the reels and send the copy and all of that. So, but I wanted to go to New York because I wanted to see. If Rockefeller was getting it like 
They said they was getting it. The uh-huh. TV show, they yeah. were getting it. And they was getting it. I was impressed, you know? Uh-huh. But still, I was just waiting to rap. Was Jay in the studio with you when you laid your first? We were in the studio. Jay stepped out. So I I, I write fairly fast. Mm-hmm. Um, So I wrote my verse and probably laid my verse in 20 minutes. Mm. And so when he stepped out the room and came back, Guru and I were talking. And Guru turns around like, yo, he's He's like, yo, he's like, yo, he ain't done, he ain't, he ain't laid nothing yet. And he's like, yo, he's done. <laughs> like, he's done. And so um, the idea, the original idea of Big Pimpin' was Jay had his verse and then he had a hook. And then I had my verse and he was like, I want you to write your own little hook. And then Pimp would do his verse and he, he do his hook. So the verse, the hook that I did ended up becoming the hook for the song. Big Pimpin' Spending Cheese, yeah. Yeah. So Jay had there was a different hook. An yeah, original I think Jay diff- and Hip Hop had done like a different hook before, and then oh, wow. it was just like, and I did my hook, and that just kind of ended up becoming the, the hook, hook for, for the, the song. song for the for the entire song. Yeah, what was what was your mindset right now? I I'll mean, you Jay-Z. told me you wanted to- I'll rap Jay Z. That was your mindset. That was it. That's it. That's all this is about. I don't care about the beat. Dinner was nice. Riding around in the building was real cool. Now I don't want no uptowns. Get me to the studio. <laughs> Let me show you what this young boy uh, from Park Arthur this is what, can do. This is what this is all they about. They say a lot of people have certain people in mind when they rapping like that, when they going hard. Was there anybody in particular in mind you was thinking about? Would you say, go read a book, you illiterate son of a bitch? Um, you know what? As you ask me that, I can't honestly say if there was any re- any place where that came from. I, I think it might have just been patterning, cadence. You uh-huh. know what I'm saying? Um, But I knew it was going to be poignant. Right? Right. You know what I'm saying? I knew it was going to stand out. But um, I really just wanted, that was really about dexterity. Okay. About breath control. Uh-huh. And that kind of a thing. Like, not just writing a good rhyme, but not punching in, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And um, just being, like, quick on my pen, but but concise with my pen. Because most of the times when you do things fast, they're not done well. Uh-huh. I like to be the alternative to that, that I can do things that are, of an expediated rate and still give high performance. Why did it take Pimp so long to do his to do his verse? Again, he was just concerned about the 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 mis, what would could be a potential misconception about who UGK was. And again, this was always Pimp's baby, right? Right. I was always just really alone for the ride, holding him down. So Pimp would be like, "This is what we are. This is what we." Are. And I'd be like, "Yeah, what he said." Okay, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. And, and it's whatever y'all want to do about that. So this was a different scenario. This was about okay. This is the moment that we've been saying Bumby is a great rapper. He's a lyricist. He can hold his own with anybody on the mic. Well, this is there is there, there is and will not be a better opportunity to prove that than right here, right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so that's all I thought about was just like I'm finna go in and just wrap my ass off. And and I, I and I would imagine that that Pimp's thought process was I'm gonna be Pimp C. On this record, I don't give a fuck if it's Jay Z or Biggie or whoever else. I'm just finna do what I do. I'm gonna do what I do at the Holly Browns at the mall, which y'all know about them Texas boys. It was the, like okay, Big Pimpin, lyrically is as pure representation of UGK as you can get. Yeah, right. Like me as a rapper, him as a him, him as pimp. <laughs> right. It's just, you couldn't pick lyric. Take the music away and the. The grandeur of the song, the video, and all of that. And you think of the words and the word play, you don't get a you don't get a much clearer representation of Bun and Pimp than you get in our performance on that record. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think it, it goes it goes as far as it does because it's not us trying to be something for this record, right? If it's we're going to be here, we're going to be who we are here. 
and it, it actually worked. Yeah, it worked quite well. Now, after uh, the unfortunate passing Don't worry, of, babe. We're going to get to dinner. No, <laughs> unfortunate passing of Pimp. Why, uh, you know, a lot of people can't survive without that other person. How have you managed to not only survive but to flourish? Well, I'll be honest, right? Um, it's It hadn't been fun for a while. It's just beginning to become fun again now. Right. Right, but... I got to get up and go to work, right? And this is my job. This is my career. So even if I don't feel good, I'm not. I would be far from the only person getting up in the morning, going to a job that they're not crazy about. But I get paid way more than a lot of people that feel like that about their job. So and, and you know, I have a wife that you know that does not allow me to sit around and feel sorry for myself mm. and that kind of stuff. So we just get up and do what we do. We do what our parents do. We get up, we go to work. We do our job the best that we can. We don't complain about the job we got. We just do the best we can with what we got. Mm-hmm. And it it ended up kind of paying off. And, you know, we, we ended up getting to a position where we don't owe any record companies any money. We don't owe them any songs. We don't own them any albums. And we don't owe anybody anything publishing-wise. And everything I got now is I have everything back in my control. It's like starting from square one, right? Mm-hmm. So now, knowing everything that I know about the music, everything, industry after being through everything that i've been through do you still want to do this right because right now you can wipe your hands clean and have you know a you know a legendary career some would say right you know so now it's not about doing music because you have to because it's a financial obligation to a record company or to a publishing company or some kind of entity right we're in a position now to make music because we want to not because we have to tell me about the new music you got coming the new music is is amazing. This is this is my fourth solo album, but it's really the first rep- real solo representation of me. My solo career came as a necessity with Pimp being locked up and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was in the best group in the world, greatest position I could possibly be in. So I, did, I never had any wants or needs or aspiration to ever be a solo artist. Um, I became a solo artist because of necessity, because of the situation. And so my whole solo deal and the album's they came of it was about Pimpsey going to jail, Pimpsey passing away, having extra records left at a record company. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. This is the first time where I get to create a body of music purely from my own point of view and the way that I want people to see me, right? Mm-hmm. And so that made it interesting again. Okay. And the process of going out and doing it and to have an album so personal that I'm not holding on to is 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 amazing. Like. I'm very, very, like, serious about maintaining, you know, the integrity of the brand and the music and myself. And now I don't have to hold on to that as much. People know a lot about me, so now I can just kind of talk about things like I want to. And I want to have the artistic freedom that I feel I need in order for people to really feel me because they need to feel me. Because I feel like I'm in the same place that everybody else is in right now. You know what I'm saying? And what the, place is that? Just trying to figure out tomorrow. Okay. You know? And it's not a, a money thing because those things are proportional. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm as broke as, as the man under me and probably as rich as the man in front of me. Right. So I can't worry. That's not going to... Money is not going to solve everything, right? So if I just think all I need is to get this and it's going to be okay, I've been here long enough to know that don't work like that, mm. right? So we've got to find different levels of happiness. We've got to define success differently, right? Um, and so we've got to look at how we go into all of these things differently. 
to get things out of it differently, right? So I'm finding myself trying to break out of this mind state of find a date on the calendar to put your album out and stick to it and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, right? And in order for me to have this artistic freedom that I need to make the music I want to make, I got to let go of everything else. Mm. So being a person that was, who for many years never had the opportunity to market and promote himself in the way that he could, or the way that he felt he could, and to see success be marginal because of that, and then finally get to a place where you can promote and market yourself exactly like you want to and find great success in that, right? So now it's like I'm, I'm redefining success. So I'm redefining what's, what freedom means for me as an artist. So I'm letting go and worrying about how we're going to sell this and how we're going to promote this and all of that. I just want to make good music. Just good music. You know, and and again, I have these spurts of inspiration where I think we should do this or I think we should do that. This would be a great marketing opportunity or a great way to do, you know, show corporate synergy with all these people that we work with. And then I let it go. Like, that, that'll be there when this music is done. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Right. You put I, together I, I, good out. You're still going to have to market and promote this after. So don't worry absolutely. about it now. Right. Wait till you finish doing the product first and then worry about it. Then we can worry about all of it. Did you ever think Bun B would be a college professor? No. Bun B didn't even, Bun B, you know, thought college would have been the worst thing to happen in his career. And it it eventually became one of the best things to happen (laughs) in my career. It's amazing. I honestly, even while looking up to people like Chuck Rock that had a degree in college and people like Chuck D and all of that, I still myself didn't. I knew I had enough of what it took to go to college. I didn't know if I had enough of what it took to make it in the music industry. So I was very concerned about trying to do both of those at the same time. I felt like I was going, one of them was going to fall. So I felt like take some time, try one, and if it doesn't, go and try the other. What's the curriculum like that you teach? It's pretty heavy, man. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of books. There's a lot of supplemental reading. Um, you know, we teach 100 and 300 in the same course. So 300s obviously have even more than the 100 has. Mm-hmm. And you can't just know the top eight at eight. To get good grades in my class, <laughs> you got to you got to know what what uh Cedric and Cedric, Cedric and Cedar means. You right. know what I'm saying? So you guys get that deep into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about it. We start we start with with slavery from the musical aspect, and we start with the Cross Bronx Way Express from the cultural aspect. Wow, wow. So y'all, I really do get deep. Before we even talk about a party, we got to tell people how you know as far as the culture, what were the circumstances with within which this this culture was created from. Right. And then we go to music and we talk about rap being one of America's original music forms. Well, how did we get to rap from music in America? So we started the Negro, the spirituals, to the gospels, to blues, to jazz, to R&B, rock to and disco, roll. rock and roll. And then we end up with, with hip hop. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. Add in a little bit of Jamaican DJ. DJ. Oh, you got to add that you know Jamaican in there. You have to add that. Yeah, the, if you don't have the Jamaican DJ call and response, then you don't have hip hop as we know. Absolutely. It Without the shadow of a doubt. Just now, being real. My producer tells me that Bun B, you're a foodie. That yeah. you. <laughs> that's why my wife is looking yeah, that's at why me. Yeah, trying to get out of here and get some good right food. Now. Now. You want to get some food. Uh, she told me you did a, uh, you got to eat this with Premium Pete. Yeah, yeah. We have a food blog. You got to eat this.com. Really? Yeah, yeah. You have a food blog. You gotta yeah. eat this dot You gotta eat this dot com. So what do you do? You, you go different cities, different places. Yeah, and we just try to find things that we think would be interesting for people to eat. Not the common things that people would eat, but different takes on traditional different, you uh-huh. know, different takes on traditional dishes and something like that. Like not just a regular burger, but like a crazy burger or something right. that something that doesn't necessarily wouldn't technically qualify as a burger, but prepped in that way. So, and then you know, as you get more into it, people are like, man, I'd love to try that but I'm gluten-free. And then so we started gluten-free 
find some recipes. And then we created, um, what did you eat today? You know what I'm saying? So people could upload something, you know, email it straight to us, and then it will post automatically up on the page and show what they ate and where they ate it at. So we it became we didn't we never did it for money, and I probably the most I ever made is five dollars a month uh-huh. off of it. But it was just something that we was like, yo, if we do this, if we start telling people all the good food spots where we know, they gonna start telling us, and then we are gonna know where all the spots. Are. <laughs> And if we, you know, maybe we put one or two of them up on there, we might get a free burger, a free yeah. meal, or something. <laughs> a free meal. And it's actually growing into this fully interactive community of people that just love food and want you other people to eat. You got to eat this com. Yes, we sir. definitely got to check that out, man. Absolutely got to check that kind of joint out. You took a break from social media, huh? Yeah. Why? It was necessary, man, because I I had a very clear sense of who I was for a long time, and somehow trying to to navigate in a social media world and be everything to everybody in these spaces, it kind of took me away from who I was originally. And when you're not aware of these things and people try to tell them, you, if you're not listening to yourself, sometimes you have to listen to people that you trust more than yourself. And mm-hmm. that's what happened, man. Just, I just became a person, a vision of myself that no one around me could recognize anymore. Mm. And it's just, and it's not about, um, it wasn't even about the fact of just being on social media and doing different things in the space. It's about becoming idle. Right. And just not being the best version of yourself and not being productive and taking time away from the things that you need to be concentrating on and the people that you need to be concentrating on because you're trying to look good in this picture and you're trying to promote this kind of image. And you find yourself looking at a picture and then there's an ad and you go look at that ad and you find yourself deeper and deeper down in a rabbit hole. And it was just something that for me in the time that I, I couldn't manage and I couldn't control. And it was going to cost me more than followers. Mm. You know? Yeah, in the long run. Absolutely. You think people spend too much time on social I media? I know people spend too much time on social media. And the problem is, is that not all of that time is bad time, but just a little bad time is enough bad time. Right. You, you know, know, I'm you... not saying that everybody is doing things they shouldn't be doing on social media, but everybody that's on social media probably spends more time looking at things or being focused and nosy about things that they probably really shouldn't be in the first place. <laughs> I wouldn't know these things or care to know these things about other people's lives if I didn't see them on my timeline. Yeah. Yeah, like absolutely. And my life would be just fine without it. Yeah. And I, I find that now we got people that they just, any dull moment, any quiet moment, they're on that phone. Like, they have to go to the phone and, and see I, what look, happens. And, and we, I think we, the, 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 we believe that every time someone picks up their phone, it's for social media, and that's not true. Right. I move in a lot of different social circles, and a lot of people are actually answering emails and texts mm-hmm. and handling a lot of business. But we do spend a lot of our human interaction through phones. Mm-hmm. You know, we text more than we talk. We email more oh, than yeah. we text. Absolutely. So we have lost um, a level of human um, communication and uh, communing um, based on these these devices. And they, they don't get me wrong. It's convenient to be able to... You need to send somebody a song, and you got the song on your phone. You can just send it. Cause you used to have to go all the way to the studio, <laughs> find out when someone's gonna be in, have them pull up the tapes, play all. It's it's a lot. There's a lot of things that that are easier because of these phones. But easier isn't always mean. Doesn't always mean better. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? There still should be some kind of chase and um, the quest for knowledge about things. And googling something is not a quest for knowledge. Hmm. Hmm. Somebody go to the library. It's, I mean, it's a way to get a quick answer for what you're looking for, but it's not a quest. And it's for not knowledge. always the correct. It's not answer. a quest of, for knowledge of which. Imagine if your 12 year old son wanted to know about sex, like in a very true, genuine, real way, and they go in and then they type in sex. They're not gonna. They're not gonna get anything biological. Right. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're going to get 18 million porn sites right. before they get to a biology book or anything like that. You know what I'm saying? So, again, like I said, people use these things a lot of times with good intentions, but there's so much bad in it that it's it's very hard to not get caught up in a little bit of it at some point. Bon- and, a, and a little bit of bad just is too much bad sometimes. A little bit of bad is too much bad sometimes. Your wife is looking at me like she want to stab me in my back. She's so hungry, so I'm going to let you Because we try to get some good Jamaican food. All right, and, well, go and it's ahead. only one place. In Monday, there's no Jamaican food open on Monday, nowhere. So it's very hard to find good Jamaican food on a Monday. And there's one spot left, and it closed in 20 minutes. But oh, I, go. But but if I call it in, then I'm good. Okay. If I call it in, if okay, I can get Okay, do you want to tell me the name of the spot so I can get me some Jamaican food, too? On a Monday night? Yeah, yeah mangoes. Okay, I know what mangoes is. Absolutely. Am I twenty minutes away from mangoes? No, You're way Perfect. less. Perfect. Bon, I love you, brother. Yo, thank Appreciate you so much. Spending some time yo, with me, y'all. Thank you for. I love seeing people like you and Slay, who stay in the culture, right? Who find other ways to move from one one outlet or one platform to another, still being true to yourself, still being true to the culture, and still giving back while you receive, man. And that inspires me to do not just be an MC, but give whatever it is that hip hop is giving me back some kind of way. And it's a reciprocal because hip hop, you love hip hop, hip hop loves you back. Absolutely. All day, every day. I see it. And next time I see you, I have some cigars for you. I have some Jamaican food for you. Okay, my brother. <laughs> Bun be in the building with us, man. It's the Come On Son podcast. I'm Ed Lover. Y'all know what it is. Until the next time, y'all be well. Now get the fuck out of here with that <laughs> bullshit. Come on, son. This Ed Lover podcast is being done in conjunction with Cigars International. Make sure you check out CigarsInternational.com for all your cigar needs. This episode of Come On, Son, the podcast is produced and engineered by co-executive producers Kimana Paulus and Krista Hayes. Recorded at Mean Street Studios in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, this is an official Loudspeakers Network podcast. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.